You're listening to the Palladium Park Podcast. This show and our website, palladiumpark.com, are designed to improve thinking and communication skills. Your hosts are the co-founders of Palladium Park, Jenna Shaw and Colin Wheeler. Together, they explore the vastness of intellectual curiosities in the world. Like and subscribe to this show to never miss a new episode. Although we are consultants, we are not consulting you through this podcast. All information shared in this podcast is intended to be informative and entertaining in nature. While we make every effort to make sure topics discussed on this podcast are accurate, they may be incomplete or changing in nature. All views and opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Palladian Park. Okay, welcome to the show. Today we're going to be talking about our most recent blog post, um, which is an overview of biases. There's a whole lot of biases, and basically what they are is they affect how we interpret and process information. And everybody has them. Uh, They're a result of evolutionary progress, as well as previous life experiences that each of us have had. It's kind of curious how... So the funny thing with biases is that we can't really completely remove them from our lives. Uh, we're all susceptible to them to varying degrees, depending on the situations that we're in at whatever time of day that is. However, it is a lot easier for us to notice biases and biased thinking in others rather than it is in ourselves. So that's part of the reason why it's very important to have a, a close circle of confidants and advisors and stuff. Jenna being one of mine. Hopefully I'm I'm one for her too. Absolutely. But it's basically just to, so you can help each other avoid pitfalls of, of biased thinking and really focus on making good decisions. So I think that we'll probably just jump into each one and we, I don't think that we'll be going in order or sorry, actually we will be going in order, but not, we won't be jumping back and forth. It'll Jenna and I collaborated on this one. So whoever wrote on a specific bias will be covering that one. So, yeah. So we're going alphabetically, but we might not always be equal back and forth. I think they can, I think they can handle it. I think so. (laughs) I'm pretty smart. I'd say so. They have good taste. Cool. So with that, we'll start with our first one is action bias. So basically, action bias is our tendency to favor action over inaction. Really, this one can often benefit us, but it can also lead to poor decision making. So some of the biases, you can see why we have them and where they benefit us at times, but there's also major pitfalls. And so with this one, action can be a very good thing. It can be good to be proactive, but also this most people tend to have knee jerk reactions and not think through things. And it can, the pitfall of it is it can really um, lead to not having the proper consideration when making a decision. And it can lead to a lot of bad decisions and unintended consequences. Anything to add? You nailed it. Sweet. Oh, and we included a quote, Colin included this quote, and I really like it. It's from Seneca. If a man knows not to which port he sails, no wind is favorable. I liked that. So I figured I would just Mm -hmm. shout it out. Uh, Next one is anchoring bias. And this one is huge in pricing, negotiations, a whole bunch of stuff like that. And basically what it is, is it's an effect where the first piece of information you receive influences our processing of any subsequent information. And so basically you are tethered to that first piece of information or anchored, if you will. And that's anchoring. That's why it's called anchoring bias. And so really where this comes into play for like negotiations and stuff, the first party to throw out their terms 
it influences the way that people see any subsequent terms or deal making afterwards. So it kind of sets the, the main point, which if you're a skilled negotiator, then you can, you can move that anchor, but it takes a, a whole lot of skill to actually do so. Another example of this is also price point. So if you see like a TV for a thousand dollars or something like that, it might be too expensive for you. But if you see a TV for a thousand dollars that right next to it has a $2,000 price tag with a red line through it. So it's on sale, half price sale. You might think that it's cheap. You're getting a great deal. Whereas you're spending a thousand dollars either way in the first situation, it's too much for you. And the second one, you think it's a steal. Funny how biases can can really trick us into thinking some something's bad versus good like that. For sure. How it can take the same information, the same price point, and based on that completely change your outlook. Shows how powerful it is for sure. So our next one's attentional bias. Do you want to take this one, Colin, or do you want me to? We kind of collaborated on this one together. How about I start out and then, then you uh, wrap it up? Wonderful. So attentional bias is our tendency to focus on certain phenomena while simultaneously ignoring others. And basically, we, we have a certain threshold of information that we can process at any given time. And so that's what attentional bias is. It's where you are assigning priority to all of the plethora of information coming in to you through your different senses. So yeah, you're assigning priority to it. And the ones that are higher priority, that's the one that you're actually devoting time, attention, energy to. And a lot of times, those can be the correct things to focus on. And some other times it can be something that you, it, it really doesn't behoove you to spend time on that versus something else. Yeah. And I think of this one really caught my attention. Wow. That's terrible. <laughs> I didn't mean no pun intended, but it, gosh, dang it. I hate myself a little bit for that one. But yeah, this one caught my attention because it's one of those that are, it affects everybody and set, but in such different ways, because it really is like it, you have the different, I think of it as like different stimuli that are causing your, your attention to focus on that. And so everyone has different ones. There's a lot of common ones between us, but everyone has their own and certain ones drive it. Our example, I think, and that was, which we all know, like, don't ever, they always say, don't go to the grocery store when you're hungry, because you're much more likely to buy more food and a lot of highly palatable, not very nutritious food, because you're very hungry. Your attentional bias is on that hunger and on that sensation in your body, and you're going to do that. And so same thing can happen with whether it's if you're addicted to like nicotine or with drinking or all these different things that can show in people in such different ways, but it's very universal in that regard. And so it's a good one to keep in mind. So from there, we're going to talk about now the bandwagon effect. And this is, is where people act or think in a certain way, primarily because other people are doing it too. It's in all the different areas of life, from politics to sports to fashion, finance. You can kind of find it everywhere, anywhere. And uh, the way I like to look at it too is like the the rate of conversion to a, that a particular idea or belief or trend. It basically increases in proportion to the number of others who have already hopped on the bandwagon. So the more popular it gets, it keeps rising. It's almost like an exponential growth in that way. And so, and th- this one I think of is it's a good thing because it reflects that we're collaborative beings and that's social beings. And that's what's made us really successful in a lot of ways. But then it shows the pitfall of that or where we have to be careful because it very quickly becomes herd mentality. Just making that assumption, it's a way of almost simplifying the world of saying, because everyone is doing it, it must be good. And as we all know, when you stop and really analyze situation, that's not the case very often. And so it's important to stop and take the time to really evaluate anything, any popular belief or idea or trend against your own values and belief system to really make sure that it's something worthwhile and something you want to do and stand behind. Nothing to add. Cool. Commitment bias. This sometimes also is known as escalation of commitment. 
It's basically our tendency to remain committed to prior behaviors despite new evidence that our original choice no longer has a desirable outcome. This is a hard one. It, it it's kind of tied into sunk cost ideas of it's once you've the more resources, time, energy, money you've poured into something, the more difficult it is to give up on it or to say it's not worthwhile and change course. And so it good to note that and to keep especially if it's a public, another is like, if it's a public commitment outward to other people, you're much less likely to change course or change your mind, even if it behooves you to do so. So it's important to make sure that you're analyzing what you're doing and make sure it is a winning venture instead of continue investing all of your resources into a sinking ship, if you will. Yep. So next one is confirmation bias. And I think that a lot of people have heard of this. It's a pretty common, excuse me, it's a pretty common one. Basically, what confirmation bias is where you have a belief and then you seek out information that confirms it. And that's all. You don't seek out anything that challenges it. The problem with that is nowadays with the internet, you can really find anything to support whatever belief that you have. Uh, If you believe that the earth is flat, you can search on the internet and you will find other people who think the same thing and have written about it. And so you can use that as your quote unquote proof that you are right. It's kind of insidious because it can trick you so much because it it makes you feel smart. To think that you're right makes you feel smart. And a derivative of that is feeling smart makes you feel good. And so an incentive to keep doing this is it makes you feel good. Doesn't mean that you're actually accurate, but that's, that's basically confirmation bias. It can trick you into thinking that you're right about things that you're not right about. And so a way to kind of guard against this is if you have an idea... It's fine to search for confirming information, but you should also search for disconfirming or challenging information and really try to be like a referee and you're you're letting the two sides duke it out and you're trying to observe and take in points from each side and, and see which one actually makes the most sense. It's almost like inverting it, the mental model of that of going, don't just go for the confirmation, flip it around, mm-hmm. which is kind of the foundation of all argument too, right? To form a really great argument, you should focus a lot of your time on the things that don't confirm the negative side so that you make sure that your point is valid and correct and you have counter arguments. Right. Yeah. So the next one is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And basically this is a lot of people know this by asking the question, why do so many dumb people think that they're smart? And it's basically the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it says that um, your ignorance tricks you into believing that you're highly knowledgeable on a specific topic or you are extremely skilled at a certain thing. It could be playing a musical instrument or a specific sport or something. And Jenna, you I know that you have examples of this with various musicians and stuff that you've interacted with in your life, but it's really all encompassing and it ties into the circle of competence mental model that we've talked about previously. And so if your circle of competence is very small, you don't really know what all is out there for you to not know. And so you think that you're pretty smart, you know a lot about it. But as your circle of competence grows, you become more knowledgeable. It's this uh, side effect that we talk about that your your area of expertise is increasing, but your perimeter of ignorance is growing as well. So basically, you just know so much more about what's out there that you, you're you not an expert on. And so we have a graph on the blog post of the Dunning-Kruger effect, and it's based Basically, these two peaks. The first peak is really at the beginning of time of your knowing or learning about something. And so as soon as you start learning about something, you feel like you're very knowledgeable in it. But as time goes on and you learn more about it, you're like, oh man, there's so much more to it than just that one-on-one class I took on psychology or whatever. 
So over time, as you're acquiring more and more knowledge and you're approaching, you know, quote unquote mastery, the 10,000 hours that a lot of people talk about, then your confidence in your knowledge starts to grow again, but much more gradually. That's basically the Dunning-Kruger effect is that if you're ignorant about something, then you're probably going to be hubristic about it. And the more that you learn about it, the more humble you become generally. You nailed it. Can I also just say the graph that you found, your diagram for this is so great. And the labels are incredible. (laughs) You have that first big peak and it says peak of quote unquote Mount Stupid. It doesn't have only to do with age, but you really relate as a young person, you know, and as a teen, you think you're on the top of the world and you know everything. And then as soon as you come to, you know, face to face with the real world, this happens all the time, but that's the big moment where you, and I love it because it's this huge peak and it goes down and it says Valley of Despair. And that's such a great point. And anyone that's really learned anything, it's that no doubt, like learning's hard experience is hard. And so it's such a great way of saying that because that does feel like that at times where you get real low and you're like, I don't know anything. And this is a lot more difficult than I thought it was going to be. And then I love slope of enlightenment as you're, you said that slow crawl upwards um, and then time finally to a plateau of sustainability. And I was like, ah, oh, that's a, there's such great labels. And it, it really does mimic the process of as you start learning more and losing some of the hubris. And I like that it shows it's not an easy process, but worthwhile in the end. Kudos to you. A great ad there. Thank you, Wikipedia. (laughs) That was our source. (laughs) The best source out there. (laughs) (laughs) If it works, it works. Amen. So third one in a row for me, familiarity bias. And familiarity bias is basically what it sounds like. A lot of these are indicative of, they sound like what they are. And so it's basically the comfort with what, the comfort that we feel with what we know. And so we're going to move towards that which we know and move away from that which we don't know. And again, kind of there's there's a lot of gray to these. A lot of times they work, but a lot of times that they can really get us into trouble. And so if you're listening to this and you haven't heard about this before, you might be thinking, well, that's like the circle of competence. You want to stick with what you know, right? And yeah, you do. However, what you're familiar with is not necessarily always the best decision. And so from an opportunity cost perspective, you have to weigh in the pros and the cons, what's the risks associated with it in order to really vet out your options. So basically familiarity bias is not saying that it's bad to stick to what you know, but it's saying that we're going to overweight what we are familiar with um, at the expense of that which we don't. Well put. Thank you. I have nothing to add. Okay, next one's mine, framing effect. So basically the framing effect is where we base our decision-making on the way information is presented rather than looking uh, holistically at all the information. Um, and once you start to notice this one, you know it everywhere. And it kind of is intuitive a bit. You, some of the examples I included were like it attribute framing. Usually when you're talking about ground beef, they say it's 90% lean beef, not 10% fat. Focus on the positive there. Same thing with risk framing. Like you have an opportunity to save 85 out of 100 lives with some like clinical trial, let's say, versus the risk of losing 15 out of 100 lives. Usually focus on the positive there. Same thing with goal framing, offering a $10 reward versus imposing a $10 penalty. And so framing can work both ways, though. It's not always positive, negative, but it's good to know that usually people use it and we use it towards the positive because we're naturally, we're very loss averse. We're neg- we don't like to focus on negative things. So most often you will see it positively, even though it can be used both ways. And so, yeah, knowing this, it's good. It can help you combat it. And I think the first step is making sure you have all of the relevant information, you know, the positive and the negative and all that. And then once you make sure you have all that information, then do one of our mental models we like to talk about, inversion make sure that you flip the script. So, you know, these are very simple examples, but that idea of when you're presented 90% lean beef, then tell yourself and write down, oh, it's 10% fat. 
Um, and so just take that and expand it to any project or idea. And that's the best way to look at it to make sure you under truly understand all the benefits and all the costs and try to compare them apples to apples. And it'll usually that ends up helping your decision making and giving you a more holistic view of where you are and what the best course of action is forward. Yep. Nothing to add on that. So the next one is me, hindsight bias. Basically, hindsight bias is where you're looking back throughout history, and it can be recent history, it can be ancient history, it doesn't matter. But you're looking back at past events, and you're assigning a higher degree of likelihood that they were actually going to happen um, versus what the odds of them happening actually were. And it's because we're influenced by knowing that the events themselves actually happened. So hindsight bias influences or the fact that something happened and you know that it actually happened, that influences how you think about the probability of it actually happening in real time. So instead of on a scale from zero to 100, what percent that it was actually going to happen in real time, looking back, it can sometimes look like an inevitability, which really just isn't the case. Something to really keep in mind with hindsight bias is just because something happened doesn't mean that that was the only option. That was only one potentiality, and that's what what actually happened. So it's not a hundred percent chance that it was going to happen, but rather it's a hundred percent chance that it did happen. The next one is loss aversion bias, and Jenna actually mentioned she gave she gave a little foreshadowing about loss aversion earlier with how the framing effect works, and that is that we are generally a loss averse species, meaning that we don't want to experience pain, and that is because a lot of studies have shown that an equal experience, uh, so say like you find a hundred dollars versus you lose a hundred dollars. Losing $100 is going to be more painful than finding $100 is pleasurable. So basically, the magnitude of emotion is going to be stronger for something that is negative. And it is because of that that we actively seek out decisions and experiences and stuff where we will not feel pain. Because even if we don't feel as much pleasure for that, it doesn't matter because we are making sure that we do not feel the pain. And the problem with this is that there's a lot of times where taking a risk makes a lot of sense. And so if, you're, if your judgment is skewed based off of you just don't want to experience any pain, you could be losing out on a, a lot of really good upside, even though it might not feel like it. Yeah, I think this is a great example of when we talk about you can't get rid of biases, biases, it's like most of them have a use. Like there is, a, we said this in a few of these, that there's a good side to all of them. And I think loss aversion is one where it's good to have some of that. It's good, you know, it's natural that we're somewhat loss averse because you don't want to be reckless and a madman or woman on the, you know, never fearing anything. But it's like everything we're being conscious of it and aware that it's like it can lead you astray quite often. And we, we definitely, I think, lean on this one too much. Like we, That's when it becomes a problem is when we're scared of any pain or of any loss, even though we all know that's a fundamental part of life and existence. And so I think this is, I think you nailed describing it, but it was hit me as you were telling me that it's like, yeah, this is a great example, even though it applies to all of them of that. There's a reason behind all of them. And, and that's another thing. It helps you be more forgiving of yourself too, right? It's easy with biases to get frustrated and it almost becomes a moral issue, right? Of like, you know, why do I always do this? Like, no, it's universal. We all do it. It's not that. It's just of trying to think more effectively and mitigate and reduce these as much as we can. Yep. A little tangent there, but you got me thinking. So. Perfect. <laughs> Great. Well, do you have anything else on that one? I don't want to cut you off. Nope. 
Wonderful. So the next one's mine. Optimism and pessimism bias. So these are kind of two edges of the same coin opposites a little bit. So optimism bias is where we overestimate the likelihood of positive outcomes and underestimate the likelihood of negative outcomes. If you invert that with pessimism bias, it's basically we overestimate the likelihood of negative outcomes and underestimate the likelihood of positive outcomes. We're much more likely, both of them occur, but optimism bias is much more common. A lot of times you'll actually see pessimism bias in people that are depressed or other things, not only then, but that's much more common, but we're naturally more optimistic. It's why all the time with a lot of big projects, anyone that's worked on any kind of project from small to big, a lot of times it ends up taking more time and going over budget than we think. And that usually comes down to optimism bias of thinking that everything's going to go the way we plan it. Nothing's wrong. And as we all know, Murphy's law is quite real. Anything that can go wrong will. And so it's important to just know that most people, your predisposition is to think everything's in your favor and it's going to go well. Um, but that's not always the case. And it also can happen too in if you take a personal approach, one of them is like most people, right? When you think about, you know, like half of marriages end in divorce, most people will say, well, mine isn't going to do that, right? And a lot of people, when they talk about their kids, they're like, well, my kid is above average and very in- intelligent. And so we, that's just our natural predisposition. And so it's good to keep that in mind. And same thing, if you naturally happen to be more on the pessimist, pessimism bias side, it's the same idea just inverted of knowing that you tend to fall on that side and to try to look at the things that can go right because things do go right just as the same way as things can go wrong yeah well put so recency bias is a bias that really entices us into believing that recent events are more likely to occur again as opposed to uh, potential other scenarios and it's really because we we favor what we most recently experienced and project into the future so this is something that is really big issue for like investors and stuff Things happen in cycles, and if you only look at recency bias, okay, what caused the last market crash, or what was the latest craze that people just got rich quick off of, and they looked at that and really kind of overweight it. I like how we put this in the blog where we say that myopia is, or a form of myopia rather, is um, what recency bias really is. It makes you nearsighted where you can see recent events in greater detail and the events that are further in the past, they get a bit fuzzy. Okay, on to rosy retrospection bias. And this refers to um, our penchant to recall past events more fondly than the present ones. This kind of alludes to a common idiom of like seeing the world through rose-colored glasses. And a great example of this that first came up to my mind when talking about this was Donald Trump's slogan of make America great again. He's. This is definitely not a new thing. This has happened all throughout history, but it's it's very closely aligned to nostalgia. Uh, nostalgia is not always rosy retrospection bias. There can be connected good things, but they, they kind of run parallel or adjacent to each other. They're, they can go hand in hand at times. And so it's basically being, you know, remembering too much of the positive and the good things from the past and forgetting about some of the negative things. And that's pretty much a human trait that we have and the way our memory, our memory works. And so it's not uncommon. We all have to deal with that and counteract that. But it's good to just realize that that's what we're doing and understand that the whole thing of the grass is always greener on the other side, or especially when looking backwards into the past um, is just not true. And so it's good to just analyze and be aware that that's kind of our default setting and a natural thing that most people do and uh, try to really remember and read history about the positive and the negatives of everything to understand holistically what actually was going on. There's a great quote in this and you had you added this one as well, a gentleman in, Mo- in Moscow. For as it turns out, one can revisit the past quite pleasantly, as long as one does so expecting nearly every aspect of it to have changed. What a great book. Such a good book. 
Anything to add to that, Colin? Uh, not really. The The only thing that I can really think of is it's also important to realize that everybody's past experiences are different. And so great point. And people define things differently. Start with the definition. And so what was great for one person in the past could have been a nightmare for somebody else. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a call to diversify your points of view. We always talk about that of looking like in you know the circle and when you're looking at past events, trying to get as many voices and different perspectives because we all experience it different. So it's a real call for diversity and looking at things from many perspectives. A great point. Thank you. Okay. I think from there, then we're going to talk about self-serving bias. So you're stuck with me again. You're getting sick of my voice, I'm sure. Self-serving bias is the tendency to take credit for positive events or outcomes and blame external forces when negative events or outcomes occur. And it's really comes down to it's a defense mechanism that we use, and it it really helps protect our self-esteem. Ideally, as we get older, we get better at this one because our self-esteem has risen through, you know, living in in the world and working hard and finding our own self-esteem. But it is a way uh, trying to do that. And so because it's much easier and it's kind of our default setting, right? It's much easier to take the good things, you know, take credit for that and then pass blame on the bad things. And that's why it's this ties in like why it's so hard to be a good leader because a great leader, what do they do when things go well? They give the credit to their team. And when things go poorly, they take responsibility, kind of they invert the self-serving bias and flip it on its head. And a simple example that we included was, you know, if you get a good grade in school, right, have that big test in college. And if it goes really well, you're going to attribute that to studying hard and doing the right things and doing the homework and all of that. But if it goes poorly, a lot of times people will say, well, the teacher, my teacher sucks. So they didn't prepare me correctly. It was really hot or really cold in the exam room. I didn't get it. My roommates kept me up at night kind of thing. So it's a a good thing to keep on the front of your brain. Just know that most people's default setting is the self-serving bias to protect our self-esteem. Yeah, so next up is status quo bias. Getting close to the end here. Status quo bias is the tendency to prefer the way that things are over change and basically just says that we do not like change. If we have to choose something, we're going to prefer things to stay the way they are rather than for them to change. Uh, There's a lot of overlap here between this and loss aversion or familiarity bias. But some examples of status quo can range from like politicians, if you have an incumbent versus a new contender, or if you go to a restaurant and you always order the same meal, that is the status quo. You don't, you don't want change. So that's that in a nutshell. It's pretty, pretty self-explanatory to the point. So then the last one we got here is survivorship bias. And this one is, in my opinion, super, super important. And it's a little bit tricky. It's hard to spot sometimes. And it's because, well, I guess I should probably start with defining it, right? Start with the definition. So survivorship bias is where we look at those who have succeeded in order to ascertain our likelihood of success. It's not bad to look at those who have succeeded, but when you're only doing that, that is not the whole population that tried. And so you need to look at the entire population, the winners, the losers, and then the people in the middle too, to get a whole picture of it. So that's kind of the problem. So from our mental models and spectral thinking, you need to look at the entire spectrum. And so if you're only looking at the winners, you're only looking at one side of the spectrum. And when you do that, the map does not accurately reflect the territory, which one of our favorite uh, mental models, the map is not the territory. Mm -hmm. It is a representation. It's a group of data points and they are representing a greater issue. But if, if they're skewed or they're complete and you don't know that and you take them as complete, then you can get in uh, a world of hurt. Yeah, because you're having that one portion. If you're only looking at the survivors, one portion of the map, while that's important, we want to have the most complete holistic map we can. So looking at all of them. Mm-hmm. I was struck by two. 
I like how you said at the beginning with this one, because I think it's true a lot. Most people have heard of all, most if not all of these, I would imagine, and a lot of them are thought of quite a bit. It's always good to dig deeper, but this one especially, I feel like isn't as common or with it, like you said, it's harder to spot. It's not as obvious, but it once you really start digging, you can kind of see it everywhere. And it is such a important one now, especially I think too, because we so often only listen to one side or the other. And a lot of times it's easier to just look at the winner. Like in this case, if you actually take it as survivor, but then it can also be the winners that have their voices heard more. And a lot of times you could say they're equally important, but a lot of times we learn the most from losing, right? Most people like when you fail or when you lose, most people say that's the biggest learning opportunity. You can learn from both, but I think a lot of people would agree with that. And so in some ways you can correlate that to say, oh, maybe it's equally, if maybe not even a little bit more important to talk to the people who failed that lost and like figure out why, because there it's a whole gold mine there of information and knowledge and wisdom to be gained. Yeah, definitely. There's a, just to go a little more in depth on this one, there's a really important study that happened, I believe, during World War II. And uh, it's these pictures of planes with these red dots on them of where they were shot. And basically, the question is, okay, where do we put armor on planes? Because we want planes need to be light enough to fly and light enough to not require so much fuel to actually get places. They have an actual radius of travel on one tank of fuel. Um, but then at the same time, they don't want to be shot down, so they need to have some protection. And so the, if I'm remembering correctly, the main parts where the red dots were, were on the, the main wings and the back wings. Sorry if I'm not using the correct terminology. I'm not an aerospace engineer. So basically, if you look at that, you would conclude, okay, I'd put armor at that middle and back part. But what you're not taking into consideration when you do that is those were the planes that made it back and those were that's where they were shot so a different way to think about that when you're taking into consideration survivorship bias is that okay maybe these are the places where you can get shot and still return to base completely different way of thinking about it you, important whenever you have information that you're trying to work your way through to avoid survivorship bias is okay is this all the information are all sides of the story represented usually not but it's so easy just to take what you have and run with it yeah i forgot that's such a great example because it shows too when you first hear it you're like that logically makes sense like see where they're getting shot and then when you use inversion, good old mental model that we love, and you flip it, it's like, oh, gosh, that just totally turns it on its head. And who knows the answer? But once you think of it that way, it's like, oh, this could be we could be barking up the complete wrong tree. And so, yeah, it's such a worthwhile way to look at it. Well, with that, I think that's all of them, isn't it? That's all of them. Do you want to wrap us up? Yeah. Do you have a favorite, Colin? Ooh. Uh, well, recency bias would make me say survivorship bias. <laughs> Since that was the last one, Look we at just you. talked about. So self-aware. People are either applauding you or rolling their eyes. They're right they're definitely rolling their eyes. <laughs> I don't know. That's a tough one. I so even though I was joking about the survivorship bias, that I really do like that one. Dunning Kruger effect. I really like that one a lot. I really like that one too. Dunning Kruger because I feel like that one isn't maybe as mainstream. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Confirmation bias, anchoring bias, probably those. I know you said a favorite, and I named like four favorites. That's what I expected. (laughs) That's pretty on brand. No, that's good. I'm the same way where it's hard to pick one. Yeah, I don't like to be put in a box. (laughs) You're sticking it to the man or the woman (laughs) in this case saying, "Uh uh-uh. Yeah. So would you go with Dunning-Kruger? 
Or do you have another one? Ooh, I would say of yours, I liked all of them. I, we've talked so much about survivorship bias. I enjoyed it. But I think, yeah, Dunning-Kruger was my favorite because it more in depth, especially with that chart like I talked about. I loved that and thought it was so spot on with and ties into so many things we like to talk about with circle of competence and all of that. And then I think with my own, I really liked talking about framing bias because you know, or is it framing effect? I don't know. Mm-hmm. They all go from bias to effect. But I like that one because it's very, it's, that's a pretty well known one. But when I, as I was writing it and going deeper into it, it really reminded me of how pervasive it is and how it's really everywhere. And it's a good reminder. Well, and I guess if you don't have anything else, if we want to wrap it up, you included a great Henry David Thoreau quote. And you know, I'm a sucker for Henry David Thoreau. Walden, all of that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a pretty good place to end. So we'll, if you have nothing else to add, we'll, we'll let Henry David Thoreau exit this podcast for us. So the question is not what you look at, but what you see. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope that you enjoyed this show about biases. Please, if you did enjoy it, like and subscribe to our podcast. So then you are notified for all of our future shows coming out, a few of them being each bias in detail.